Let's turn to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. We'll read there in a minute. I once attended a workshop in Plano. Uh, the goal was to learn how to engage unreached people in DFW. And our table was assigned several places to meet people who embrace Hinduism. Um, we were told to go to an Indian, a particular Indian restaurant and an Indian marketplace in the Metroplex and also a couple of Hindu temples. Two things were common to every one of those encounters. One, an abundance of idols on our table, on the walls, one for the cash register, another for the entrance, hundreds for sale, multiple in the temples. The other was a worldview vastly different from Christianity. Jesus could be one among millions of gods. The historical veracity of Jesus' resurrection didn't matter at all. All that really mattered was the religious experience, regardless of historical verification. Or take the word born again. A Hindu steeped in the concept of reincarnation understands born again very differently than you do. An abundance of idols, competing worldview. This is but one window into our society. Our society at large is no different. Rachel and I went out to eat for our anniversary. We couldn't help but notice TVs on every wall. All different sizes, each showing a different sport, all vying for your attention, displaying idols of a different sort. Not to mention the folks gloating over the new sports car or the American nationalism plastering the news or various ads promising security, satisfaction, life, and everything else only God can provide. It's also not difficult to encounter competing worldviews. A worldview is your all-encompassing perspective on everything that matters. You know, where did we come from? Why are things so bad? What's most valuable? Just listen to the news or read a New York Times bestseller or engage people at the coffee shop. Talk to your neighbors. Islam, mysticism, postmodernism, secularism, Marxism, new age spirituality. We live in a culture teeming with competing worldviews to true Christianity. The next two weeks we'll be looking at Paul's ministry in Athens. Athens was a city with an abundance of idols. Athens was also known for its propagation of ideas. Philosophers debated daily in the marketplace, each trying to one-up the other. And Luke offers a picture of the gospel entering this context, a context very similar to the one we live in. How will it fare? 
What can we learn from Paul's engagement? What idols does his theology confront in our own lives? Well, let's find out. Reading in verse 16, this is the word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or, or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, and that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we're indeed His offspring. But being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Why don't we pray? Father, I thank you for this time to be in your word together. It is a treasure that we have this word in our language, uh, each with our own copies, and we sit here uh, with them open. I pray that you would, you would really bless this time and, and make our hearts glad to receive your word, and that you would also make us, make us doers of your word, uh, not hearers only. And we ask this in Jesus' name. So why don't we take this in three parts. The context Paul faces, uh, the, the, the message Paul proclaims, and the effect 
on the people. So first, the context Paul faces. To begin, the city is full of idols. Full of idols. Even outside sources confirm this about Athens. You've got this one author that takes you on a, on a tour of the city and he points out the various idols. The temple of Demeter. The statue of Poseidon. The gymnasium devoted to Hermes. A house to worship Dionysius. Images for Athena, Zeus, Apollo, the Muses, Aphrodite. Idols swamped this city. But notice Paul's reaction. His spirit was provoked within him. This same word describes the Lord's reaction to idolatry in the Old Testament. Israel's idolatry provoked the Lord to anger. You see, God is jealous for His glory. He doesn't tolerate false worship. The same jealousy for God's glory is in the Apostle Paul. He knows how holy and worthy God is. And the people's idolatry breaks him inside. And so much so that he can't wait for Silas and Timothy to show up. He's got to share Christ now. And the motive of Paul in evangelism, what we're seeing here, is that his motive isn't simply love for mankind. It's also, and more fundamentally, a jealous passion to see God worshipped rightly among all peoples. The city is also full of competing worldviews. You know, there are Jews and devout persons, and these folks are biblically literate. Right? They attend synagogue, they hear the scriptures, and those scriptures shape their outlook on the world. But even then, they read it from a certain perspective, a certain worldview. They, they don't see how those same scriptures point to Christ. And Paul is there to show them, in fact, how they do so. And then there's also the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. These people are biblically illiterate. They don't know Scripture. Their culture at large hasn't been shaped by the categories you and I often assume other people have here in the Bible Belt. Epicureans were materialists. No creation. Nature has no purpose. Gods were permissible, but they were seen as refined atoms. No future life. No future punishment. The soul was material and perished without any ongoing sorrow. And then there were the Stoics. You know, their goal was to make people self-sufficient. And they taught pantheism. God is equal to everything. They believe the world is fire in a variety of forms. That history is not linear. It's an endless cycle of rebirth by fire. Nobody lasts forever. And despise the pursuit of pleasure. 
Paul converses with these educated philosophers. And some of them scoff at him. What does this babbler wish to say? And the word picture here is that of a scavenger. Okay? They mock Paul as a scavenger-like bird who's going around picking up scraps of information and passing it off like he, like he knows something. It'd be like calling someone a cocky plagiarist. And others say... He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, right? They, they've, they've heard of Zeus and Apollo and Hermes and Aphrodite before, but nothing like what Paul was preaching. Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching Jesus. Now, this is, as we've seen, uh, Luke's way of summarizing the good news. Right? Jesus' perfect life. Jesus' substitutionary death in place of sinners. Jesus' resurrection on the third day. Jesus' present reign. Jesus' future coming. Paul also preached the resurrection, it says, which doesn't refer only to Jesus' resurrection. It's also the bodily resurrection of all people at the end of history. Epicureans and Stoics had no categories for Jesus and the resurrection. This stuff sounds foreign, like foreign divinities to our ears. Which highlights one more aspect of Paul's context, Gentile ignorance, Gentile Ignorance. Notice how Luke emphasizes the ignorance. Verse 19. May we know what this new teaching is? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know what these things mean. He also describes how they spent their time in verse 21 doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. They're lost. In their ignorance. Give us, give us something new today. And then there's the altar to the unknown God in verse 23. There are actually the times of ignorance in verse 30. What is the point? The point is to highlight that the Gentiles are sitting in ignorance of God's special revelation. Now, we talked a little bit about this in chapter 13, where Paul himself is commissioned by Jesus using the words of Isaiah that he was called to the Gentiles, to be a light to the Gentiles, to those who are sitting in darkness. And we talked about how they're sitting in the darkness of their ignorance without God's revelation. No scripture. No Christ. They're sitting in a darkness cut off from God's truth. So idolatry, false worldviews, ignorance to God's truth. And all these aspects are interrelated, aren't they? You see, when you're ignorant of God's truth, you will fashion a false worldview. And when you have a false worldview, you'll exchange the glory of the one true God to worship idols. 
And when you worship idols, you rob God of the glory that's due Him. That is the context Paul faces in Athens. And that is the context that we all face today. It's no different. And this prepares us to hear the message Paul proclaims. The message Paul proclaims. But let me clarify just a few things before we read Paul's message. Don't assume this is everything Paul said. Speeches were often much longer, and Luke, as we've seen throughout Acts, has a pattern of, of being selective in what he's, he's uh, pulling out from those speeches. There's also no need to accuse Paul of missing the full gospel, right? Just because the cross is missing here doesn't mean he didn't find it essential. Not only is he interrupted in verse 32, but he spends more time with those who are willing to listen. And since he was preaching Jesus, it's safe to assume he elaborated the cross. And you'll also notice that Paul doesn't quote Scripture directly in, in, this, uh, in this proclamation. He usually does so with those who are biblically literate. But he doesn't assume that these people know Isaiah and the Psalms. That doesn't mean he's unbiblical, though. Everything he says you'll find taught in Genesis 1 and 2 and Isaiah 40 and the Psalms. But what is peculiar is how he also borrows from sources in their culture and he affirms where those sources align with biblical truth. He finds common ground and then he sets that within a biblical worldview. So, when he quotes a pagan poet, don't think he's gone off the deep end. In the Lord's common goodness, pagans can observe truth about the world and humanity, even if only in part. It'd be like, you know, quoting a pagan scientist who observes the intricacy of the human eye and concludes intelligent design. For all we know, he may mean an intelligent alien. But there would be a way to borrow his conclusion and then point others to the true designer, to to the true God. Now with that said, let's jump into Paul's speech. He begins like this. He says, men of Athens, I perceive in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. In other words, these people are so religious that should there be a God they don't know yet, we better be sure he gets an altar too. And Paul meets them right there and basically says, Hey guys, you're right. By your own admission, there's a God you don't know. And that unknown God, I'm about to proclaim him to you. 
Of course, the God Paul goes on to proclaim isn't just one among many others. He's the only God, period, and he deserves all their worship. He explains first that God is the universal creator and Lord. He's the universal creator and Lord. Who's doing VBS this week? Raise your hand. See VBS folks. VBS folks, you are starting here this week. You're giving children a biblical worldview by beginning here, the same place Paul is beginning. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man. You see, everything fits in one of two categories. You have the Creator and the created. The Creator and everything else. God is in a category all to Himself as Creator. He is not equal to creation. And right away, what Paul is doing here is ruling out the pantheistic views of the Stoics. Creating everything also means he rules everything, right? Nothing is outside his sovereignty. He's not like the Roman gods who ruled limited domains like the skies. You have a God for the skies, and you have a God for the seas, and you have a God for the land. And you have gods over limited realities like a God of war and the God of agriculture and the God of fertility, Also, he isn't a God limited to a local ethnicity, right? Paul wasn't proclaiming a foreign deity who's coming in to compete with the Roman deities. No, he proclaimed the only deity whose rule is comprehensive overall, which also means his presence isn't limited to human temples. You know, God once manifested His glory in a temple, but never such that He was limited to that temple. Never such that people controlled Him by that temple. He was far greater and is far greater. And again, what Paul is doing here is separating the one true God from all of the false gods in Athens. Second, he teaches that God is the sustainer of everything. Verse 25, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The five to seven-year-olds learned this last fall in discipleship hour, that only God is self-sufficient. Only God is self-sufficient. You see what he's doing against the Stoics? I said the Stoics taught people to be self-sufficient. He's saying, no, no, no. Man is totally dependent on God. God alone is self-sufficient. God is the God of aseity, to use an old word. That is, he exists from himself. He's not dependent on anyone For anything. God does not need us. 
And that's another shot against polytheism. The gods in polytheism are dependent on temples and sacrifices to keep them going, to keep them happy. And the true God doesn't need our worship to be complete and happy. He doesn't need anything. A.W. Tozer once put it this way, God is not greater for our being, nor would He be less if we did not exist. Third, God made humanity to cover the earth and seek Him. God made humanity to cover the earth and to seek Him, to know Him, to find Him. Verse 26, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So He's not like the foreign deities that favor only one ethnicity. No, this God created everybody from one Man, and the goal was that all the peoples he created from that one man might know God. He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So we've seen here that he's a God who's transcendent overall, and yet he's near enough to know. As Paul explains in Romans 1, God has made known his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature in the things that have been made. See, creation points people to the Creator. He made people to look at the world and to seek after God. But instead of acknowledging the true God, what ends up happening? They replace Him with idols of their own making, of their own imagination. And that's where Paul heads next. Fourth, God shouldn't be replaced by idols. Things created by the art and imagination of man. He can't be, create, he can't be replaced by them. Verse 28, As even some of your own poets have said, For we're indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So there's one sense in which uh, the scriptures speak that where, where only the redeemed can be called, can rightly be called God's offspring. God's children. We're sons and daughters only by our union with Christ. And without Christ, we are children of the devil. We are children of wrath. But there's another sense along creative lines here in which all people are God's offspring. And this audience knew what Paul meant by this language. And they understood him to mean that people were God's workmanship. He he crafted them, and, and in that sense, He fathered them into existence. 
And if, if even their own poets recognize this about human nature, then why in the world would they reduce God to an idol? You see the logic here? If people are God's workmanship, there's no way God can be their workmanship. Does that make sense? That's the argument he's making here. And he's pointing the finger and saying, guys, your worldview is illogical. It doesn't make any sense. And not only that, it's led you into a bunch of false worship. And false worship has consequences. You see, they were right to see something of God's nature revealed in humanity, but they were dead wrong to turn him into an idol of their own making. And this kind of idolatry means judgment. And that's his last point. God will judge everyone by Jesus Christ. They are accountable, and we are accountable. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. The times of ignorance... For centuries, the nation of Israel benefited from God's special self-revelation in Scripture. God did not give this special revelation to all of the nations. He was not unjust in doing so. He was perfectly just to leave everybody lost. If anything, we have to say God was merciful to give His special revelation to anybody. And He chose Israel. And there was a long time when He let the nations, the rest of the nations, walk in their ignorance. But Paul is presenting us with a new situation. A a situation that says that that ignorance is, is a thing of the past. Listen to to it again. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. You saw this uh, also when He was speaking to another group of people who are biblically illiterate, and and He makes the same point in chapter 14, verse 16. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. In the past, right? And here we see, but now. It's not that, the, that, the, 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 that nations everywhere all of a sudden stop walking in ignorance, but that God now has a mission not to leave them in their ignorance. Okay? The death and resurrection of Jesus has shifted, shifted redemptive history into overdrive, so to speak. Rather than dealing with Israel alone, primarily, 
God has commissioned the church to take his special revelation into all the earth. And Paul is giving the Gentiles that special revelation right here by proclaiming Christ. For the Epicureans and the Stoics, as we observed earlier, there, was, there is no afterlife in their worldview. There was no punishment. History was cyclical without end. Not so according to Paul, or more accurately, not so according to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' resurrection guarantees that there will be a future reckoning. History is not cyclical without end. It's going somewhere, and it's going to the resurrection and the judgment. And the new heavens and the new earth. He will raise everybody from the dead and judge them in righteousness. The risen Jesus is leading history there, and nobody can stop him. And so the proper response, Paul is saying, is to repent. To repent from your idolatry now, while there is time. You see, Paul doesn't want the Areopagus simply to tolerate his message. I get the feeling like that. Christians nowadays are just, just society, would you tolerate us for a while? That is not all his goal. Simply to tolerate our message No, his goal is repent from all your idolatry. He's come with a message of the king. It's not about tolerating another philosophy among hundreds of others. He's saying this is true, you got to repent. Right, I was telling the guys in pastoral discipleship when I was growing up, and Dad said, I'm going to the grocery store. I want you to pick up your room before I get back. And you just lollygag around. And then you hear the garage door opening. And everybody's, whoo, whoo, got to you know, put, put, put everything in the toy box and shut the closet. And... Right? There's something about Dad's coming presence that makes us move. And Paul is sitting here saying, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees He's coming again and He will raise everybody. He's on His way. You better repent. Act now. What are the results of this? Well, some mock Him and others believe Same thing we've seen throughout Acts. It's mixed response. That's the effect on the people here. Verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We'll hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul didn't win a bunch of converts on the spot. He had to tell some of them again and again 
and again and explain it some more. And over time, a few join him and believe. And he names two in particular, Dionysius the Areopagite. So he'd be one of the, the key judges among all of these other philosophers that he was speaking to earlier. And also a woman named Damaris. So even some of the very educated and and the very trained in philosophy believe this message. So what 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 does all this mean for us? Well, there is so much that I had to extend the application to next week also. Here's what I want to talk about next week. I want to talk about evangelism and what this passage says about evangelism and our mission to the world. I want to talk about the resurrection in particular in our evangelism. I want to talk about how Paul models the way to reach people in biblically illiterate contexts and what we can learn from him in that. And then I want to talk a little bit about what Paul's words here imply for racism and refugees. But today, I want to close with these two. These two. I want you to draw confidence from how the gospel saves people amidst idols and false worldviews. That's one. Draw further confidence from how the gospel saves people amidst false I mean, it's idols and false worldviews. <clears throat> you see, our culture is teeming with idols and false worldviews. And if not careful, we begin to think, well, there's no hope for anybody. How can anybody ever believe in a context like ours, forgetting God saved us? But Luke wants to convince you otherwise. You see, by naming a member of the Areopagite and by naming another well-known woman, Luke shows the gospel is powerful to save in this context too. And not only is it an intellectually respectable message, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You know, you may have heard of Rosaria Butterfield before. I've mentioned her her books um, Many of you might not know her biography, though. In her late 20s, allured by feminist philosophy and LGBT advocacy, she adopted a lesbian identity. Rosaria earned her Ph.D. from, the Ohio, from Ohio State University and then served in the English Department and Women's Studies program at Syracuse University and long enough to be tenured there. Her primary academic field was critical theory, specializing in queer theory. Her historical focus was 19th century literature informed by Freud, Marx, and Darwin. She advised the LGBT student group. She wrote Syracuse University's policy for same-sex couples and she actively lobbied for LGBT aims alongside her, her lesbian partner. 
Rosaria is comparable to the educated philosophers that we would see like in a context here. And would you be tempted after hearing that litany of things that are probably so far from what you know as Bible Belt Christianity, would you, would you be tempted to underestimate the gospel's power in her case? Would you think, how could the gospel ever change her? Well, the gospel did change her. And it all began with a man named Ken Smith who wrote a response to one of her articles and then patiently for two years showed her hospitality in his home and uh, uh, answered her objections to the Christian faith. The gospel wrecked her old way of thinking. That's her words. She, She calls her conversion experience a train wreck. And now she writes and speaks very boldly for Christ and against many of the things she had once devoted her life to. So draw courage from the fact that the gospel is able to save amidst idolatry and false worldviews, as we see here. And then second, repent from all your idolatry and false gods. Repent from all your idolatry and false gods. God commands all people everywhere to repent, it says here. A person repents when he reorients his will and his desires and his whole purpose around the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And doing so means renouncing our idols. Now, idolatry isn't simply external. It's not just statues. Idolatry is also and ultimately a matter of the heart. Arrogant self-reliance can be idolatry. Habakkuk 1.11. Uh, ben was preaching to us the other day that presumption on God's grace is as idolatry. 1 Samuel 15.23. Colossians 3.5 equates greed with idolatry. All idolatry comes from the same place, which Paul explains in Romans 1, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for created things. Exchanging the truth about God for a lie. See, idolatry grows out of a heart that refuses to worship God for who He is and doesn't know God as He truly is. As one pastor put it, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it's an idol. So how do we walk out repentance from idolatry? Well, most fundamentally, we need a heart like we see in Paul. We need a heart that's jealous for God's glory. We need a heart that's jealous for God's glory. A heart that breaks inside. When God is ignored and when God is dishonored and when God is traded for a pack of lies and fleeting pleasures. You won't and you can't forsake idolatry as long as there's no passion for God's glory. 
You must be made new from within. And God must do it. Yeah, He gives means like His Word and prayer and the church. And we can wait expectantly in those pathways of His gracious gifts, but they don't work mechanically. The Holy Spirit must produce this change, must produce this kind of heart that is so zealous for God's glory that it breaks inside and it's angered inside by your own false worship and your own false gods and those in our culture. See, our problem, some of us struggle with anger, our anger problems is that we're angry with the wrong things. Idolatry, false gods, false worship, our own sin ought to appall us. And the only way it will is if we're jealous for the Lord's glory. Cry to Him and ask Him to give you such a heart. Also, equip your mind to discern idols. Equip your mind to discern idols. Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And he's seeking to renew the mind of these Athenians by speaking objective truth. We have to think differently if we're going to discern idols and our God replacements. Sometimes we cannot discern idols because aspects of our worldview are still too influenced by our culture or our subcultures that we're part of. Ask someone to give up their smartphone to break some bad habits. And it's not uncommon to hear, but I need my smartphone. Who said? Who taught you that? Has the culture taught you to see it as a need? Is it really true? Right? Or how about, you know, living as if God needs us? Even Christians sometimes talk this way about evangelism if God is just wringing His hands not knowing what to do without us. How is He going to reach the nations without us? You hear it at funerals. Well, I guess God just needed him more in heaven than he did on earth. Baloney. God doesn't need anything. Friends, that is paganism. And that's actually liberating to know that God does not need us. You see, we serve not because God needs something, but because he gives us the privilege in Christ to draw from his fullness. Or how about the way that people forsake rest and don't care for their family all in the name of productivity? Productivity and profits. Preach it, America. It's not that they're necessarily bad, but they can be valued in such a way that we forsake rest and we don't really care for for our families. It even gets cloaked with, you know, well, I'm just being a good employee. Or I'm, I just want a good future for my kids. 
when really we assign such a high value to productivity and financial security that we're willing to disobey God's command to rest and to care for our family. Or identity politics and tribalism Those things are influencing the church as well. You know, we assign such value to our hero. I don't care if it's a present-day hero or a historical, a historical hero. Such value to our hero, to our team, to our situation, to our position in life that we will stoop to dishonesty and slander while refusing to be objective. That is idolatry. And beloved, these things must not be so. In order to discern idols, we need to equip our minds. We need to study truth and shape our worldview with a proper doctrine of God. That's what Paul lays out here. And one by one, the false gods of their culture are just falling away while the true God stands forth in all of His glory. So study the Word to understand what values to assign things in God's created order. The world's going to tell you to assign values to some things, and unless you know the scriptures, you will follow them. Let God's word determine what values you assign things, and by doing so, we'll keep ourselves from elevating created things above the Creator. As long as false gods remain disguised, we won't know how to flee from them. So pursue truth, study hard, make God centered evaluations so that you're not duped. And then lastly, walk with the church closely. Walk with the church closely. Men and women joined Paul, and he furthered their understanding of the truth. Surround yourself with brothers and sisters who will help you identify idols and love you enough to rebuke you when you're bowing to one. You see, we all exist, and we were all redeemed to know and enjoy worshiping the one true God. He deserves all the glory, honor, and praise. Why don't we pray together?